0: Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not easy, to put it bluntly, uh, but it brings sort of an extra panache to a especially public event, because people have never seen it, but some people know what it is, and they think it's extremely cool when they, when they see something like that in a public setting.
1: Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner Podcast. This is Chris here once again. We've got a special guest on today who I am excited to talk to. Daniel, uh, thanks for coming on the program. Well, thanks for having me. So to start off, why don't you um, kind of give a brief introduction, let us know how you got interested in World War II and how you got started in World War II reenacting.
0: Well, the thing is, like, I I think it's, the same for me as for many people, that is starting in childhood with maybe like your grandfather showing you stuff, that's, in my case at least, with military, and for example being handed a MK2 Milch grenade at the age of, what was it, like eight, like here's a present, um, that sort of got the ball rolling, um, and it basically just got from there. Uh, when it came to reenacting, uh, that sort of started. I was contacted by a guy called Robin here in my country, a part of the group called Von Uh He knew that I was interested in getting into something because this was in the late days of my army days where I wanted to do something militaristic in addition to my military service, like when that finished.
1: So what... Um what country are you in?
0: Oh, I'm in Norway.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah, that's uh, some place that I've never been. <laughs> uh, you know, what is reenactment like there? Uh, how many events do you do, and um, where do you guys do events?
0: There's, I think, there's two groups: is Funchampana, which is us. We do SS reenacting, then primarily from the Norwegian uh, volunteer regiment, and then you have Divisionen, which does. A regular here.
1: For a long time listeners of the program, that's that's Lass's group, the other
0: group. Yeah, that's true.
1: So that's cool that you guys have uh, different groups there doing different impressions. Um, do you do just events in Norway or do you travel uh, outside of Norway as well to do reenactments?
0: Well, primarily it has been in Norway, but we have done a public event in Denmark for a couple of years. But of course, Corona had a stopper for that. And last year... No, I mean, this year we're supposed to go, but then they didn't really allow for SS reenactors to come as SS due to the war in Ukraine and stuff like that. Uh, So now it's just been a really long time since we really had an event because we've been doing other stuff in preparation for events, (laughs) if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, we'll get into some of that stuff a little bit later on. Um, About how long have you been reenacting over there? I finished my military
0: service in 2016, and I uh, started to dabble in it in, in late 2016, but I guess my proper enactment stage started in like 2017.
1: I wanted to talk to you about another impression that you have been working on doing a, a German police impression, the Polizei. Um, how how did you get started or interested in uh, the Polizei aspect of World War II?
0: I sort of got into the uh, police aspect, like when I was 14, 15 years old, it started with collecting, uh, you know, those postcards or postcard portraits, and then just accumulated from there, from postcards to other paper stuff, to then medals, to headgear, and then uniforms, and it never stops.
1: That's cool, yeah, um... You know, I collect original World War II stuff as well. Is that um, something that you were doing even before you got started in reenacting?
0: Oh, yeah. That's what sort of started when I was, I guess you can say, eight years old by being given a MK-2 Mills grenade. (laughs) Sure. Yeah,
1: I find find reenacting and collecting to be kind of different hobbies. You know, I really enjoy collecting stuff, and it helps me – sometimes with reenactment being able to compare original items to reproduction stuff and, and evaluate the things on that basis. But, um, you know, I know a lot of really great reenactors who never got into collecting. And of course there are a lot of collectors out there who think that reenactment is silly. Um, so, you know, I think it's, I I always think it's kind of interesting to talk to people who do both. Of course, there are many collectors who are also reenactors and vice versa. Yeah, that's
0: true. But the thing is, <laughs> when you start collecting, it's very hard to stop, and then trying to divide like how much you can spend on reenacting and collecting, it's sometimes a very hard choice to make. That's
1: such a, such a good point. Um, you know, for many years I had to really hold myself back from buying more reenactment gear because I would tell myself that if I had more money to spend on my hobbies, I should put that money into my collection rather than amassing a vast stockpile of, uh, Of reenactment stuff and even just recently I've sold some of my extra reenactment stuff and put that money into original things for my collection that I otherwise would have struggled to afford with the money that I make at my job Um, so yeah it is it is kind of a challenge to try to do both certainly plus the amount of space right like I have my World War II collection of original stuff that takes up a bunch of space and then I have my reenactment gear and I have a lot of it and that takes up a lot of space too so it uh, it is a little bit tough
0: yeah, and you, mention, and you mentioning space, I live in a 30-square-meter apartment in Oslo, so a lot of it just stays in boxes, uh, <laughs> so having to dig it out every time I'm going to use it, like, it's... Uh... I wish I lived sort of in a bigger area, but it's it's not possible with work.
1: A long time uh, listeners of the podcast will know that I live in a giant mansion with hundreds of rooms, so I don't have that problem. You know, I just can have a different room for every single thing that I collect, which is really great.
0: Well, then you're living the life.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess to to circle back around to Politi, I definitely think. Um, I can see the appeal of it from a collector standpoint. The items are interesting and beautiful, and there's a lot to learn about there. But trying to cross that over into reenacting, I could see that being challenging because um, it's a very niche impression. There have never been a lot of people doing any aspect of the German Polizei. So, um, you know, why don't, why don't you talk a little bit about how you kind of are, are trying to break through and, and do some Politei reenacting.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not easy, to put it bluntly. Uh, but it brings sort of an extra panache to a especially public event because people have never seen it, but some people know what it is and they think it's extremely cool when they, when they see something like that in a public setting. For example, in Denmark, there's the event we go to, it's an entire village uh, that puts up different shows and to just create an atmosphere of policemen going around and you're standing there, you're checking the tickets of the people who's entering, for example. Um, but it's not easy uh, due to the fact that there's never really been much of reproductions and such, so it's been trying to find people who can custom make stuff um that has not been a easy journey
1: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) i know at one time well we should say you know kind of at the outset a lot of our listeners may not be aware that the police system in nazi germany was a lot more complex than it is in the modern day united states probably more complex than it is in most european nations too i would guess where they had um many different levels of police, different organizations in the police state that was the Third Reich. And then in addition, you had um, during wartime, police units actually being deployed to the occupied areas and even finding themselves in combat against uh, enemy armed forces in some cases. So when we're talking about Polizei, there is really like a huge spectrum of different impressions that that could entail.
0: Yeah, the Polizei went everywhere. They went from partisan fighting to front line to rear echelons, everything. And, of course, the daily life of Germans. And, as you mentioned, it was divided into several different groupings. You had the Wasserschutzpolizei, which was the police on sea. You had Gendarmerie, which was the more rural police. And you had the Gemeindenpolizei, which was in medium-level towns of population. Then you have Schützpolizei, which was like uh for the bigger cities let's say berlin or and also later on as combat troops but that's under the umbrella ordnungspolizei and then you had verwaltungspolizei which is the administrational police that had to do with everything by well, let's well everything that has to do with paperwork um and then you had the Verkehrspolizei, which is traffic police. So everything was, um, or there was a lot of different organizations under the umbrella of Polizei.
1: So what are you focusing on for your reenactment project?
0: For my reenactment project, I mainly focus on Schutzpolizei because it's the easiest one. And it can be used at frontline, it can be used as regular police duties, and but I I do have impressions of almost every single one. (laughs) That's cool.
1: Of course, there's different uniforms as well, even within the same organization where, um, you know, the combat kit of a Polizei policeman slash soldier is going to be different than the service uniform of a German policeman in Germany uh, interacting with the German civilian population.
0: Yeah, that's true. You had the Dienstrock, and then you had the Feldrock, oh, I mean, Feldbluse, and you even had HBT. Well, you had a lot of stuff.
1: Sure, there's a huge variety there from the, you know, Panzer police uniforms to, um, I'm sure they had all kinds of, uh, you know, work uniforms. I mean, it just must be a, an unbelievable array. Um, are you able to get reproductions of everything that you need, or in some cases um, do you have to use original stuff?
0: Well, in many cases I do have to use original stuff. For example, Insignia is not the best uh, when it comes to reproductions. The Arm Eagles have been decently reproduced, but like color tabs and shoulder boards, like the ones that are out are okay, but they do not come close to the originals really so that me, can also be would, expensive
1: yeah for, for me it would be tough using original stuff not only because it is um you know not only because it's uh, original and, and expensive as a collectible but also because i would just be worried about damaging it during use you know a lot of um even just sewing it on the uniform, you know, for me, that would be something I would be worried about. But I can understand that uh, for some of the impressions that you're trying to do, there just really aren't any options at this time. This is something that I think a lot of new reenactors kind of have to learn when they get into the hobby. They see this tremendous amount of reproduction stuff that is available, and they think that they can do any impression of uh, uniformed World War II personnel that they can think of. But then when you start to try to actually put it together um, outside of the sort of mainstream impressions that everyone does, it can suddenly become very hard or impossible to get reproductions of certain absolutely needed items.
0: Yeah, that is absolutely true. And it has, (laughs) it's been hard to try to get people to reproduce them. I have been successful in some occasions uh but of course I use original insignia on the dean's jackets because well they're not really going to be used in field wear they're going to be used as let's say policing duties at events or let's go with with photo, sh- photo shoots or whatever um like I'm putting I am the one who has the depot of my group I am the one who owns all the uniforms of police I am the one who owns all the different headgear, Uh, I'm now in the making of parade gear, so it's a lot.
1: Sure. When you're doing the Pulitzer reenactment, when you're doing displays, are you attending as a member of your uh, SS volunteer group, or is it like a different separate group that you're doing?
0: No, it's uh, it's in um, cooperation with my own group. So I have uniforms for every single member, and Uh, it's only this year that I finished the uniform itself. So we are planning to attend uh, some public events next year in order to sort of get to use it.
1: That's really cool. You know, I know there are a lot of groups that are really dogmatic about only portraying one impression exclusively, but I do think that, especially as we go forward, being flexible and being open to do different impressions is a a really beneficial attitude for a reenactment group to have?
0: Yeah, that's true. But the thing is, I it's me that owns everything, so I think it's easier for them as well to to um, get to use it when they don't have to supply themselves with it, where I supply them. Uh, but of course, when everything's finished, they they will be able to sort of buy it from me for a cost price.
1: Oh, nice. How much of a regular military kit, like an Ar- German Army or SS kit, can be carried over and used for a Polizei impression?
0: Oh, quite a lot. There is, uh, for example, the bayonet frog, there is the um, tornister, the boots, as long as it's for field use, the boots can be used. Um, of course, the regular belt.
1: Yeah, I imagine that, like, the rifle ammunition pouches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the ba- some of the basic field gear items and the canteen, for example, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even the the bread bag is different. You know, the gamashen are different. The uniforms and headgear are all different. The helmet, I guess, would require a different uh, decal at a minimum, I would think, right?
0: Yeah. So you have the state symbol on on the side with the swastika and red background, and then you have the police eagle on the side. And there's also, depending on what theater you go for you can use waffen ss um uh camouflage here camouflage you can use italian Uh, it all depends on the scenario you want to go for so there's a vast uh what should we say inventory that you can use sure
1: now let me ask you this um Do you think that Polizei reenactment could have a place within the construct of like mainstream reenactments, like tacticals, for example? Um, Or do you see it mostly being something to wear when you're interacting with the public doing a display?
0: It sort of depends, because us in Fönchampen, we also have a Norwegian uh, side impression that is... um, Norsk Ski Company or Ski Company slash Police Company, which was a skiing company and police company. They were Norwegians uh, that were sent to Germany for police training and uh, were given police field uniforms and was fighting on the Eastern Front. So you can use it for a field reenactment as well, but then you have to have, of course, the field gear and field uniforms. But it's it's very much of a niche thing to do. That's sort of what's very hard about the, um, uh, eye as a whole.
1: I know there are a lot of reenactors all over the world who are in the reenactment community who would like to be doing Pulitzai impressions, but it just seems like for a lot of people, it's really hard to get a bunch of people in one place at one time, um, You know, usually when I see a Polizei impression at a reenactment, which is not very often, it's just one person doing it. I think your approach of basically stockpiling gear that you can loan out to allow people who are interested to come out without having to actually purchase another impression, that may be the only way to go. But that takes a lot of dedication. I mean, we're not talking about a small amount of money to do something like that.
0: I don't even want to think about all the money I've spent on it. When when shoulder boards cost, let's say 40, 40 euros, collar tabs cost fifty, and it, and when you got an f- outfit around six seven guys, it, it, it turns into a pretty penny.
1: Sure, um, I know that like for example, Military Harbor, who is a vendor located in China, has started to sell polizia uniforms. Do they sell both the Dienstrock and the Feldbluse, or um, do you have to find different suppliers for those different aspects of the impression?
0: No, Milter Harbor has absolutely been a blessing when it comes to Pulsar reenactment. They make correct fieldblusen and Dienstrock, and I've compared it to my originals, uh, where it's almost identical the wool, or, or like the shade of the wool. So they have been That's an cool. absolute blessing.
1: That's great. Yeah, I can't, uh, I can't imagine how it could be done otherwise. I know that, like, decades ago, there would be people who would wear originals. um, But of course, um, the price of so much original World War Two memorabilia has increased so dramatically in recent years, that that would be almost, uh, almost crazy to try to do it now, I think.
0: Yeah, because it's really funny to see the pictures on different reenactment groups where people who started doing reenactment in the seventies and 80s or something like that are using original Waffen-SS gear, which now would be ludicrous. Sure, yeah,
1: many tens of thousands of dollars for a a single item in, in some cases.
0: Exactly. It's worth its weight in gold. Sure. Um
1: but of course, even into the 90s, you could get a Pulitzer Deanstruck, for example, if you were somebody who was sized to fit into clothing from from the 1940s, you could maybe get a, a Deanstruck for what... Um, somebody might pay now for a reproduction. But as we've moved further away from World War II, these things have become more scarce. And now I see Polizei uniforms selling for the high prices that in the past um, I used to see German army uniforms being sold for, for example.
0: Yeah, I have an original M43, I think it is, if I'm not mistaken, that I had to pay around... 1,700 euros for, but that has been used in Norway by, I think it was the 4th SS Division. No, uh, the 6th. So they were responsible for guarding the the heavy water plant. Uh, they were in Stavanger. They were, I think, also in Trondheim. And I recently purchased a officer tunic of a Hauptmann from the Verwaltungspolizei or the administrational police. So things have just skyrocketed in prices compared to when I started collecting 10 years ago, which is not long ago for many people.
1: <laughs> no, I, I see the same thing that you're describing where, um, yeah, there was like a big sort of a bump that happened at some point And then when the pandemic happened, prices of a lot of this stuff went absolutely insane. And, uh, you know, I don't really know what the future holds for the prices of this stuff, but it sounds like you've got some really great pieces of history there. That's really cool.
0: For example, just how is it? Here in Norway, the prices have always been sort of low compared to the rest, or Europe is quite much lower than the U.S., where the prices can be ridiculous sometimes, in my opinion. Um, but here in Norway in particular, for what might it have been, like... Five years ago, you can get stuff for dirt cheap, which is now 20 times the price. But it's been a lot of exporting stuff, apparently. Sure.
1: No, I I see the same. I mean, a a common field gear item that I used to buy, like I'd buy a, a German army bread bag, for example, for... $35 and I could buy as many as I wanted for $35. And then one day it was $75. And now it's a hundred euro a lot of the time. So $120 or something or, or even more, maybe 120 euro, for example. Um, So yeah, it's been a, uh, a very strange thing. And maybe someday I'll do a, podcast episode that's just about collecting it's something that uh, I'm really passionate about but haven't had that much opportunity to discuss on the podcast so it's interesting to hear your take on it and to hear that um, in Norway where you live you've seen those same sort of thing
0: yeah and especially when when in the, what should we say when the internet became a real big thing uh, where people could actually uh, get in contact with people abroad in order to sell their stuff and Norway has always been sort of known to be cheap, first up, because we had this huge stockpile that the Germans left after the Second World War, where we had Festung Norwegen, which was one of the biggest fortifications or uh, bastions of the German army. So you could get stuff for dirt cheap. Helmets have sword, I don't know, I could get a helmet for 500 knocks, which now is 2,500 knocks which is Norwegian Croners. Crazy. Um,
1: I guess I want to pivot to talk a little bit about something that you sort of alluded to before, which is um, a project that your reenactment group has been up to that I am very interested in uh, getting ready for events. And it's something that I relate to as well because my reenactment group has undertaken sort of a similar but different project. Um, Why don't you tell us what you guys have going on up there?
0: Yeah, for the people who has been following von Champana on YouTube, for example, you might have noticed that we're making a bunker. So it's a German MG bunker based on German drawings. Uh, we're using the correct length of the logs, uh, but it it takes time, <laughs> especially when you're. It's a group an of
1: incredible project, I've got to say, I've watched some of the videos about it and be totally blown away. Our group here has our own quote unquote bunker, which is not really a bunker. It's just sort of a, um, a generic Unterstand kind of a thing that is sort of based on the idea that maybe this is a, um, a Soviet or even like a civilian underground living quarters. Whereas what, what you guys have done is taken an original plan. And replicated that exactly on a one-to-one scale. And that is so difficult because these German positions had to be built to withstand the rigors of combat and um, shelling from mortars at the very least or you know other weapons of that nature. So for you guys to be using these giant logs to build this structure that c- could be used in uh, 20th century warfare is really remarkable, I think.
0: Yeah, and it's not easy when, or it's on my family's land, but the land is limited, and when you need to have logs that are, I can't remember if it's 20 centimeters in diameter or, or 25, that's the minimum requirement. Um, and the original plan of the bunker is um, double-walled on each side, where we... Where We went to simplify it with only a double wall in the front where you can see it in order to get more room and space for people. If not, it would be very, very small and way more time consuming, way more resource consuming. So we've had to simplify it a little bit.
1: But even just to do the double wall on the front is, is so much work and so many logs. I mean, uh, how many trees do you estimate you guys have had to harvest? Is that where the logs are coming from? Are you taking down trees on uh, your property there?
0: Yeah, so we're taking the logs not too far from the bunker and in the vicinity of the bunker in order to clear up the um, the field of uh, site and stuff. Um, we started with <laughs> with physical manpower, so we, we thought the logs would be smaller in the beginning, but then we just went bigger and bigger and bigger, so we needed to have a six-wheeler, so I bought that in order to go on with the project, so it's uh, it's it's been a journey with us.
1: And for people who, who maybe haven't seen the YouTube videos, we're not talking here about like a a two man fighting position here. This is like a big, a big uh, construction project here. It's really, uh, it's really incredible. I got to say.
0: Yeah. I'm, I really look forward until more videos come out so you guys can see it. And for you who hasn't seen it, please have a check because it's, it's, um, it's a fun project to do and just to use your body, get out there, be with me, be with my friends. Um, but usually we've only been three guys And the logs weigh around, I don't know, everything from 200 to 300 kilos. So I guess that's between 400 to 600 pounds-ish.
1: The amount of dedication that it's got to take to build something like that with mostly only three people working is just phenomenal to me. Um, How many members do you have in your group overall? Like how big is French Champernet?
0: Uh, I think around six or seven, I can't I can come up with it on the top of my head. Um, six or seven people, and the problem is to get people coordinated with time. We have, of course, we have work, we have a social life. Um, so it's hard to get people to have time for the project, especially when, when only two of them live in the south, we are three who live in eastern part of Norway, and coordination is a B word.
1: Sure. I, I'm shocked to hear that your group isn't bigger. I mean, just seeing the videos of what you guys are working on to realize that uh, it's being built by so few people is really cool. I think that's a, a really neat project. Um what kind of like scenario do you guys have in mind for this thing that you're building where, where is where does it exist historically in time and what, what kind of events do you guys plan to have there?
0: like historically this type of bunker was widely used in on the Finnish front and in for example Nagavos. so it will be very much like this and since it's up in the mountainous area, uh, we will have a lot of skiing events up there. So that's going to be uh, pretty awesome.
1: That sounds super cool. Um, And you guys have bigger plans too, right? You're going to build some other positions around the bunker that you're building?
0: Well, there are not going to be any big positions, but there's going to be like um, where to have the phone line from the uh, FF333s and have some machine gun posts. And we might just make a... um, what we say latrine like built up from logs just from original photos especially from finland they even had had saunas and they had a deck and so the the opportunities are almost endless it definitely
1: sounds like a really opportunity rich place to do reenactment um how long have you been working on it? Like how many years now uh, is this project?
0: I think we agreed that it was three years now. <laughs> That's really cool.
1: And what's the timeline for completion? Have you thought about what the goal is for when this thing is going to be finished?
0: Well, the next time we're going to be working now is in the mid of September, and we're hoping to get finished with a roof. And the roof is the only thing remaining, Uh after that is just gonna be small things like putting in a furnace and cutting out for the uh for the pipe and after that it's gonna be pretty much done. And make the bunk beds of course.
1: That sounds ideal. How many people do you think will be
0: able to sleep in there? Uh the beds are gonna be two stories. So it's gonna be bunk beds. Uh two meters long and I think inside might it be three meters? in width so that's huge yeah so if you sleep very tightly or close i think you're going to fit around let's say if there's if they're slim 12.
1: wow that sounds great
0: so it's not a, a it's not a small bunker
1: we've got our bunkers here we're working on finishing the second one now And a question that I get asked all the time when I show pictures online is, did you guys only use period tools? Uh, Did you guys only, uh, you know, was this entire thing built like in a reenactment setting? And the reality is for us, we realize that with the manpower that we have, which is maybe, you know, a few more people than what you guys have. um, I mean, I I guess we had a bunch more people. We, We maybe had... Ten plus people working on there sometimes, but um, if we were to have used only period tools, hand tools, and uh, tools that the soldiers could have had in the field, we never would have gotten the thing done. In fact, I don't think we ever even would have been able to finish digging the hole for the first bunker. Never mind to have now two of them almost done. We did use a lot of modern tools, chainsaws, and uh, modern power tools of every description, and hidden you know you can't see this now but in the construction we did use modern materials to try to make the uh, logs last longer and make the wood last longer um, you know we're just to, for assembling this stuff what about you guys did you guys um, talk about doing it all kind of in kit using the right kind of tools or, or what did you guys decide to do
0: well that's what it started as but then we found out pretty early on that this is not going to be possible if we are only three to four people going at it. We need we need chainsaws. We need uh, heavy machinery, for example, like the six wheeler to drag the logs. Because when the logs got bigger than what we than what we used in the beginning, it would be impossible. You might have a horse, but who? Do we know that have a horse? No one. So you need sure. It's in order to keep yourself motivated as well. Because if we would have used original things, we would never be finished. Wouldn't have been possible. I,
1: that that was our conclusion as well. You know, like um, it is a boost when you can start work on a Saturday morning, and by Saturday night, when the sun is going down, you can see the progress that has been made, and in the in the, during the war, these things, of course, would have been built by huge numbers of men. You might have a company working on building something like that, so maybe a 100 men to move logs around and, and wield hammers or whatever, whereas with the scale that we're talking about for reenactment with the few numbers that we have, it just it, I think you would be totally demoralized to work all day and then at the end have kind of nothing really to show for it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, of course.
0: But, of course, uh, we have not been using any modern, like, building materials. Everything is natural and authentic. whats What we've used at insulation in the double wall in the front has only been stuff we've been cutting off from trees, sawdust. Uh, no, like, modern materials has been used at all.
1: That sounds really cool.
0: Yeah, for us, we...
1: I think did it a little bit differently because um, just sort of the nature of where we're doing this and how the water table is there. I think uh, as it is, we're having problems with mold and with moisture getting in. Um, so we did use some like plastic and stuff behind the walls in between the dirt and the walls just to try to help this structure last as long as it can. Um, Obviously, for the soldier in wartime, there is no illusion about this structure lasting for years. They're hoping that when the season changes, they're going to uh, move out and defeat the enemy or whatever. Whereas for us, we're going to be in the same spot, hopefully for years. So that was kind of our, our thought process there.
0: Yeah, uh, ours is most likely going to last, I don't know how many years, as long as it gets continuous use. Uh, when sure, you have that the is furnace, such a huge thing. Yeah, when you have the furnace going, always the important thing when you have built it is to use it often. That's why you, probably my stepdad is going to be using it you being, he's going to be using it as a uh, huntsman lodge ish. So he'll know where the key is, um, and he'll probably stare out of the um, of the MG nest i'm not sure what it's called in english and just look out because it's it's the view is straight towards um a marsh so it's the perfect field of view
1: that sounds great was it hard for you to like sell your family on this idea of building a wehrmacht bunker on their property
0: Oh no, <laughs> that's sort of a funny story because me and my friend Leander, who is the one in in charge of our group and of the YouTube channel, uh, we just sent him a message. Would you be okay if we sort of cut down some trees and start building something? So I don't think he knew that would be to this extent, but it. <laughs> 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 but he thinks. Nice. It's I like that awesome.
1: approach.
0: Oh, great. So he has some interest for World War II as well, for for guns, and we share a lot of the same hobbies, and he's been quite supportive about it. So that's, that's a good thing, but he, I don't think he ever thought that it would be to this extent, because the amount of logs that we've been cutting down, I think in total, the structure needs... What is it? Close to 90 logs of 20 to 25 centimeters in, diamet- in diameter. So it's is not few. So
1: is that like 90 trees? Do you think?
0: Oh yeah, it's 90 trees. Incredible. Because the longest wall is 6.5 meters by four and a half meters, I think. So it's it's spacious.
1: That's really cool. Um, we were chatting a little bit before we started recording, and you alluded to some other projects that you have too, uh, some some other equipment that you have. Can you tell us about that a little bit?
0: Uh, the, those are projects that's going to be on hold for a little bit because of money and other things going on. But I do have a German motorcycle. Uh, it's a Zündabdebit. 250 1938 model it's something i've restored and it's almost finished but it's missing the electricals uh so i'm hoping someone eventually will be able to take on that task because modern mc shops have not been willing to do it for some reason wow
1: that's really cool. Uh, yeah, an original tsundap is a very rare thing here in America, especially we have uh, very, very few of those. Um, a guy in a reenactment group that I used to be in had one, and he used to take it to car shows and stuff. And the motorcycle fans over here would always like freak out to see it. Um, everyone knew what it was and <laughs> uh, was excited to be able to see a real one. But he, it was a lot of work for him to keep that thing maintained. Of course, the parts have to be imported from Germany. There's like a guy, or was a guy in Germany, who had a warehouse with some new old stock and rebuilt parts. And um, these machines are. Are old and if you use them in the way in which they were originally intended where you're you're riding around in fields and stuff uh it does cause some wear and tear and require some maintenance which i'm sure you will uh have plenty of experience with as well
0: well my dad is a mechanic so i don't really have to do too much of it myself so that's a good thing that's great yeah uh, and the bike that's... itself was actually sold new to a um a uh, Wharf sun here in Norway. So it was never really brought by the Germans. So it was sold new. Wow, that's really cool.
1: It's something that you found there locally. That that's a really cool story.
0: Uh, I, I found it on a um something called know, which is I guess close to Craigslist or it's not really eBay because it's not betting, but it's uh, I guess Craigslist is the closest.
1: You must have been astounded to see that thing there i mean i would think it's that's a really cool find
0: yeah and it wasn't really that expensive either it's around three thousand dollars
1: wow what a deal
0: yeah and everything was there
1: so like it wasn't running though or, or what kind of condition was it in?
0: oh no it was running i tested it before oh, i wow. i took it apart
1: <laughs> who had it before was it like an old-timer enthusiast to uh, some motorcycle fan
0: yeah it was one of those old-timer enthusiasts enthusiasts which do not really take care of their stuff uh, he had <laughs> yeah. yeah he had this uh, under his porch together with okay. i think four other bikes from the 50s so it's more like wow. the guys who's just hoarding and thinking well i'm gonna fix it or someday
1: well that's cool i'm glad you were able to rescue it from from under the porch that sounds kind of hairy
0: <laughs> yeah and of course the other project I do have uh which is going to take longer time due to the fact that it's going to be a little bit more costly is a Opel Olympia 1938 model. Wow, that's awesome. So that was that that actually came with the Germans and was used by the Norwegian police after the war. So I have all the documentation of it and yeah.
1: That sounds like an incredible item. Where did you find that one? Same site. Wow. <laughs> And was
0: it like a vehicle
1: collector had it before?
0: It was it was a guy who thought that he was going to get time to, to uh, restore it, but then he has, I think he told me that he has 20 different vehicles. So the time wasn't uh, stretching far enough for him to do it.
1: Sure, yeah, maybe there's not enough time in the world for something like that. <laughs> no, exactly. One of the things I like about reenacting is that... Um, I've had so much contact with people with other weird nerd hobbies like people who are just vehicle guys, for example, or, or just motorcycle guys even where um, these people are super passionate about something that they can have all of this nerdy knowledge about and they have their own projects that they're working on. But um, just like with reenacting and, and collecting uh, the stuff that I collect with collecting vehicles, I have seen people bite off more than they can chew and suddenly they've got outbuildings on their property that are full of uh, <laughs> old parts of machinery and they don't even remember what the stuff is, you know, they're and, and they're never going to get finished. So, um, But that's really cool that you've got those two projects. Between that stuff and the bunker, you certainly must have your hands full with reenactment projects.
0: Uh, yeah, and I work... Way too much for my own good. So, in order to get the time for everything, is it's it's not easy. But I I gotta get money somehow. <laughs>
1: All right. So, um, for people who are interested in hearing about this stuff and they want to know more, whether it's about Polizei, the bunker, or your group or anything else, how can they get in touch with you?
0: The easiest way is to look up Font, uh, font at YouTube or Facebook, Instagram. Or, for example, me, if they want to contact me directly about Pulitzai stuff, it's schutzpulitzai45 on IG. So I'll be glad to answer any questions or help people to acquire equipment, gear, where to get it, and yeah.
1: Excellent. That sounds great. Uh, I'll make sure that we put some links, too, in the show notes, so wherever you're listening to this, you can... um, you can look there, and there will be some links, and I definitely recommend people check out the YouTube channel. There's some really impressive stuff on there. We'd take out some of our pictures from our events, and we'd be sharing them with the veterans, and you know, they would say, oh, I,
0: I don't remember who this was, or, and then we would say, oh, no, no, like th- that's us. A public show battle is a scripted battle where the um, Americans always win. It is the worst thing imaginable when you're in it. I've always loved helmets from World War II, and that has snowballed into I
1: want to get a helmet from every country from World War II. I'm insane. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. So, Daniel, we are just about out of time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and telling us about this stuff today. It's been really great talking to you.
0: Again, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Great.
1: All right. So just a couple of uh, quick notes before I sign off here. I did want to say a special thank you to everyone who supports us via Patreon. Uh, We wouldn't be able to do the podcast without your support, and we really appreciate it very much. And one other thing, if you've listened to this all the way through, um, and if you have time, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review of the podcast, wherever it is that you're listening to this. A positive review, I hope, um, because it helps us to get the podcast out there, supposedly i'm not an expert on this but that is what i have heard so uh thanks again to everyone and thanks again to daniel and to everybody out there i will see you in the field we love hearing what you think about the podcast so why not reach out to us on facebook or discord just search for the reenactors corner and you'll find us there and if you've enjoyed this episode please consider supporting us via patreon Your generous contributions, no matter how big or small, really do keep us on the air, and you'll also get regular additional exclusive episodes as a thank you. You can find details of where to find us on Patreon in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time here on The Reenactor's Corner.